0: You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amax. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more. Right now you can save $50 on Select Battery Tool Sets. Real Steel.
2: Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The Volume. No! Oh my God! How could he do that? Don't on? Donate ch- What? Charles Darwin. The nerves is where it's at.
1: Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever, and alongside me is Logan Camden. And we have a whole bunch to cover today. We're going to be doing our NBA midseason Awards, but on YouTube, that's going to be a separate clip because we have to talk about the breaking news of the day. Pascal Siakam, you are an Indiana Pacer. The trade just broke about an hour ago. It's actually a three-team deal. Sends Bruce Brown, Jordan, and Wara in three first-rounders to the Raptors. The Pelicans sent Kyra Lewis to the Raptors and a second to the Pacers. And Indiana, of course, gets spicy P. Logan, how much does this move the needle for you with the Pacers?
2: How do you feel about this for them? It's a pretty huge acquisition. I really like it for Indiana Carson, especially considering that they didn't give up a ton of value. You know what? Uh, they give up in war, they give up Bruce Brown, and they give up three first-round picks. And I know what you're thinking too: three first-round picks is no small asking price. That's a lot of capital to give up for the future. But considering where the Pacers are, I think it's a really good investment. Uh, Siakam has already said that he is going to re-sign with Indiana long-term once they get, you know, he gets into the town, gets all settled down. Uh, he wants to be there long-term, and they already have their building block of the future in Tyrese Halliburton. You know what I mean? You're not looking and searching for that guy actively in the draft. So I think what better way to pair him up with a, a real star-level player and a guy that I think is really going to complement Tyrese Halliburton really well. First of all, what these guys are going to do in the pick-and-roll and in the pick-and-pop game, he's an 81st percentile pick-and-roll roll uh, role man. Siakam is. Uh, you pair that up with one of the best passing uh, point guards in all of basketball. I think they could really complement each other. I also think that, uh, Carson, this is an Indiana team that I think needs uh, more veterans and needs more physical guys. And I think Siakam checks both of those boxes. He's a guy that's going to be able to rebound really well for you. Uh, another big switchable athletic guy on the wings. It's just really invaluable to have. And I think he takes some, some of the offensive pressure off of Halliburton. You know what I mean? He's got a really big burden on his shoulders running the offense 100% of the time, always having the ball in his hands. Siakam can also be a secondary playmaker and ball handler when you need him to be. And uh, I think you referenced this in a video you already broke down for social media, but it just gets them that much closer to getting one more asset to where they're really contending. Again, you think about the building blocks on this team. Halliburton, Matherin, Walker, Miles Turner. Uh, now they have Siakam. You, know, you have the building blocks of a really young, athletic team it's, uh, it doesn't feel that far away. I think you're right. I think they need, obviously Indiana has to get better defensively, um, and they're still a very young team. But it feels like they could be one move away to where they have a, a sort of big three. Uh, again, just with the value that they gave up and where they are as a franchise right now, I think Indiana crushed this trade, and I think it's mutually beneficial. Toronto gets to lean more into their rebuild. They have picks for the future, assets. Uh, I think this is a mutually beneficial trade, but I think the Pacers won.
1: I love this for Indiana, and I think it's worth digging even a little bit deeper into the specifics of the value because it's not just three firsts. People would say, well, you're dealing this for a guy at the deadline who has said, I want to test free agency. I don't know where you saw him say that he wants to be in Indiana. I haven't seen that, but I have seen the Pacers reporting that they're confident that they will be able to re-sign him. And you have to think that there's some level of confidence there. There's some assurance from Siakam. Otherwise, I don't think that they would make this move. But again, the context of those three firsts. Two of them are in this very draft. One of them is in Indiana's, which will probably be hovering around the 20th pick. And the other one is going to be the lesser of OKC, Houston, or Utah's pick. That's going to be the Thunder's pick. That's going to be in the mid to very likely late 20s. So two picks probably in the 20s this year in what is considered one of the weakest draft classes ever. I haven't personally really dug into it yet, but that is what we have been hearing for quite some time about this class. And then a 2026 first from Indiana, when they're still going to be really good, that pick is going to be in the 20s. So I'm not losing sleep over that if I'm the Pacers. At some point, you got to get serious. And I really like Jairus Walker as a prospect, but I mean, that was your eighth pick. He's not playing right now. You are going to now be picking dudes in the 20s and you're going to value that over an immediate star who fits very cohesively on your roster when you have your number one star and at some point you got to start putting real winning pieces around him. I would just disagree with that philosophically. I think this is absolutely the right move and it's not just adding a player of Siakam's caliber. He is a fantastic fit here because this is a pace and space offense. And there have been few more consistently great transition scorers in the NBA over the last few years than Spicy P. He's just an awesome athlete in the open floor. And one of the things that has arguably hindered him, his efficiency, has been playing in spacing hell, playing alongside a non-shooting five, playing alongside another clunky forward like Scotty Barnes. Even though he's been shooting the ball much better this year, that wasn't the case the last couple years. Playing this year with really non-shooting guards before IQ got there. And at the same time, it is a limitation of his own. Yes, he has the ability to knock down the occasional three, but he's going to shoot in the low 30s from there. He's not necessarily a big floor spacing positive. But if you put him in a spread out situation like this, where you can regularly play five out and where he's not really hurting your spacing and isn't being hurt by your spacing... That to me is just the ideal offensive situation for Siakam because that is where he can attack those mismatches. He has consistently improved in terms of his post polish. In isolation, he is a problem athletically and skilled enough as a finisher and has such great body control that he is going to cook most dudes in those situations. And I think that he fits nicely with Halley. He's never leaned in to being like a role man necessarily. He's done a bit of that. It's never been an emphasis in his game. So I wouldn't be super optimistic that Halley just unlocks that. I think some dudes are wired how they're wired. But I think there's some potential for a two-man game. They're out of pick and roll. But regardless, he's a great play finisher. And Halley is a great playmaker. He is a creator. So putting another dude alongside him who doesn't need to have the ball, who will be effective just with his athleticism, running the floor in transition, who is a smart cutter, all of this stuff, can attack matchups quickly is a really nice fit for Halley but at the same time this is a dude who can take some burden off of him and can get his own shot and can create for others which ultimately i love what Halley has done making this offense so elite this year and the combination of awesome shooting and good athletes around the rim with just his ability to dictate every possession has been a great formula but when it comes to playoff settings You need another dude who can be a high-level threat himself. Halley may be able to dissect traps. He may be able to deal with you throwing multiple guys at him consistently. Now, we saw the Lakers have some effect blitzing him and just getting the ball out of his hands. But he's generally really, really good in those situations. But you just need another dude who can go out there and deliver himself in big spots. And Siakam is that. And he's been giving you 22 points and five assists a game this year on 60% true shooting in like one of the clunkiest offensive situations in the league. And then he absolutely fits here on the other side of the ball too, because we all know it, man. Rick Carlisle said it best. You can't date the Pacers. It gets boring because they can't stop anybody. And Spicy P isn't necessarily some all-world defender, but he's big, he's athletic, He's long. He brings some rebounding value on the interior. He is a hell of a lot more serious in that front court than Obi Toppin is. And uh, they just ultimately need to take significant strides defensively if they want to ever be a real contender. And this move, singularly, does not get them there. That was not the timeline for this team, but I think it gets them a move away. If you add a real high-quality third player here, then I think you start talking about them in those conversations. I think the fit is really good. And I do like what this team has done on the margins, developing a guy like Aaron Neesmith, right? Even Andrew Nemhard. Like the Pacers have good basketball players, but they certainly needed a number two of Spicy Peas caliber.
2: And for that reason, I love this for them. So you said that you didn't love this for the Raptors. Do you think they absolutely bungled this trade by waiting so long to deal Siakam? so i don't have a problem necessarily with the value that they got
1: bruce brown is a guy who has much more value in a win now context i don't know if maybe he's a guy who they can flip to a team that is trying to get that one piece who could put them over the top we obviously saw how much he meant to denver this past year how hotly he was pursued in free agency three firsts to me when the alternative is this guy just walks In the offseason from that perspective even if it is a less valuable three firsts than average that's not bad value but i absolutely think this should have been done two years ago and og i thought they got pretty good value for but could they have gotten more a couple years ago potentially this to me is the more glaring instance where you saw teams understood the power dynamics here and they were telling you no we won't give up jonathan kaminga the pacers apparently had jalen smith as an untouchable guy like you couldn't have had that sort of bargaining power over the raptors if this was two years ago and they still had control over him and they didn't think that he was going to walk and they should have done this because three years ago you could even argue like this team has consistently been mediocre they have consistently been incapable of putting together a competent half court offense because they've lacked enough high-end skill there and that has been plain to see And uh, after they traded OG, they obviously had to do this. But, yes, this should have been done a while ago.
2: For Indiana, I mean, I just want your hypothetical, Carson, because I know your bag goes deep full of players that you could point to that would fit in this context. I think you're right. I don't think Indiana is that far away. I honestly think Halley is your one. Siakam is your three. Turner is your four. Again, I think they need more athleticism. I think they need more big guys Mm -hmm. down the rotation. Like, they're just... yeah they need to be more physically imposing and they need to dominate on the inside more so i still think that indiana needs more big athletes they need more defenders point blank period yep. is there anybody that you think that fits is an ideal number two in this context against Yakum three turner four Ooh. hallie is your one like is there anybody that really you think fits because i mean that that second guy has to be a two or a three right well, if you're talking about better than
1: Siakam, man, that's a pretty high tier player. I think that with Siakam as your number two, you can go pretty far. And I think that that's the mold that they're set to be in for a bit at least. But I agree with you. I think that you are really looking at, and I love this guy, but sort of an upgraded Aaron Nesmith, A guy who maybe has a little bit more offensive pop to his game is maybe a little bit bigger and physically imposing, but in that mold of a really high level three and D wing, I still like Turner holding down the five, and Siakam now gives you a different look where, okay, if you want to play, f- like, highly skilled center, five-out basketball, more of a small ball look, you can run Spicy P at the five. It's not going to be great for your defense, but offensively, that is a hell of a look, and you didn't have that dynamic previously. And I still think Benedict Matherin has a pretty rare combination of athleticism and and shooting ability. So if he continues to grow into his game and he becomes a lethal, let's say, number three scorer, that's what's so interesting about this team is they have guys who are very much on different timelines. They have your established veterans like Miles Turner and Buddy Heald and now Spicy P, and then you have your core guys who are very young and very much trending upwards. So, I think that it is going to be really solidifying the wing, getting a stud guy there. And then I think they have the size and the skill in their front court, and they have the superstar talent in their back court.
2: Yeah, and it'll be really about filling out the rest of the bench and seeing what pieces you have. I like Nemhard off the bench, like you mentioned. I like Neesmith. Uh, Neesmith probably could fetch you some value, too, if you wanted to make an upgrade, because he has been balling. Uh, This was really unexpected. I was not expecting this news to break right here, right now, um, all of a sudden. But it makes the East a lot more interesting. Let me ask you this if they don't make another move, this is what Indiana rocks with the rest of the way. Does this drastically change your expectations for them in the postseason? It gives them a hell of a lot more of a puncher's chance. I think
1: that with their defensive limitations, I would have confidently told you when we're talking about the other teams in this same tier. Like, the Heat are a cut above, because they have two established stars, they have this really established defensive identity, the Knicks, post-OG, they have their two-shot creators, established defensive identity, and now I think that the Pacers are firmly alongside those teams, because now they have the two-star talents, and their supporting cast is good, it's complimentary, they shoot the hell out of the ball, they run. They don't defend very well, but I do like the depth here. I think the bench, they have multiple ball handlers. I've always been a TJ McConnell guy. I'm always going to be a TJ McConnell guy. I think that that dude can run a second unit. So I like the Pacers a lot. And again, it would be remarkable if this move got them to beat the Boston Celtics or the Bucks. But outside of that, I couldn't totally write it off. And for them to be at that stage right now is pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. The one last thing that I do think needs to be touched on here outside of the scope of either of these teams is the suitors who missed out on Spicy P. I think that this hurts for the Mavs because I think that he would have been an awesome fit there. But I think that this all but ends the Golden State Warriors season and reasonably uh, any upside that they have of making any sort of playoff noise. I think that title window was closed, but they needed to bring in a skilled big forward who could also provide some size and ideally some two-way value. And Siakam was the guy who was most reasonable to target there. I would say Markkinen was the ideal fit, but I think it's become increasingly clear that it would take a lot to get the Jazz to move him, especially with how well they are playing right now. And so if those two guys are off the table, especially painful because you made this whole thing about how you wouldn't, give up Jonathan Kaminga in a deal like that. They're just done. I mean, they're not playing good basketball, and they have too many fundamental limitations now. I have been a Warriors optimist, but that has been contingent for some time upon them actually pooling these assets to make a move that fills this very clear need. And if they can't do that, how does this team win a playoff series? They got to get into the playoffs first, but very disappointing for them.
2: Yeah, I wonder if the Warriors even knew this was going on because, I don't know, dude, it seems like the Dubs could still put together, you know, could have put together a better package than what uh, the Pacers put together. You know what I mean? Jonathan
1: Kamingo would be a more intriguing asset than any of these picks, and I don't think that is going to be a star, but what we've seen from him, that play finishing alone, that athleticism, that unique athleticism that he possesses. Like, I think the guy's going to be a good NBA player. I think he's already had really good moments this year versus three picks in the 20s in a a bad draft class. So, yeah, I agree. But it's what we've talked about previously. If they are committed to Kaminga, then you are screwing over any chance that you have of making the most of this Steph timeline. And... I think that that is a mistake, even though it's very hard for me to see them unlocking some sort of title ceiling with the assets they could have moved, even if they brought in a Siakam or a Markkanen. But again, it's about developing a puncher's chance. And when Steph is clearly frustrated and Steph is talking about how something has to change, we got to make a move, we're just not good enough, and you don't deliver for the greatest player in your franchise history, I tend to think that that is not the right way to go about things. All right. Shall we get into some NBA midseason awards? Logan, let's do it. So MVP is a fun place to start because we just got the iconic battle of the bigs last night, Nuggets Sixers. It was a super fun game and Joel Embiid and Philly
2: came out on top. Is he your MVP, Logan? He is my MVP. I don't know how anybody else could be your MVP at this point in the season. I mean... Denver had no answer for uh, Embiid the other night, dude. No matter who they put on him, if it was Gordon, if it was DeAndre Jordan, if it was Jokic, the man looks effectively unstoppable right now. And I know we can tend to overuse that word, but that's what Embiid feels like right now, dude. He's putting up 35-12-6 and 6 on 54-36-88 splits, 65% true shooting with 1.1 steals, 1.9 blocks, and 3.8 turnovers per game. Carson, Embiid this season... 36% from uh from deep on 3.3 attempts a night. He's shooting, again, this is a small sample size per game. He's shooting 53% on three-point catch and shoot attempts. It's only one and a uh-huh. half attempts per game, but 53% off the catch from deep is ridiculous. Yeah. He's shooting 88% from the line with nearly 12 free throws attempted uh per game. The Sixers are 23 and 6 with Embiid and 3-7 and without him. It's insane, man. It, when you dive into the numbers, like, Carson, seven players in NBA history have averaged 35 points per game in a single season in NBA history. You care to rattle them off? I know you got it in there.
1: Let's rattle them off. Let's start with Wilt, and then we'll go to Elgin Baylor. We'll go to James Harden. We'll go to Rick Barry. We'll go to, of course, Kobe Bryant. Well, Embiid is doing it right now. And I already said Harden, right?
2: Hard. I mean, that's, yeah. Oh, Barry, Baylor, Bryant, Chamberlain, Embiid, Harden, and Jordan. The difference with what Embiid is doing this season, it's the most efficient 35-point-per-game season ever. Again, we are midway through the season, so we'll see if that holds up, but it's by a whopping 3.4% in true shooting. Next closest is 61.6%. Embiid is doing this at 65% true shooting. Only three players have averaged 35 points in 11 boards in a single season. That's Baylor, Chamberlain, and Embiid. And only two players have averaged... 35 points and six assists in a single season. That's Embiid and his former buddy, James Harden. Again, Embiid is the only player in NBA history to average 35, 11, and 6. He is completely unstoppable as a scorer. He's shooting 44% on pull-ups this season. Carson, that hezy move that he hits where he gets into the lane, he gives you that little shimmy, makes you bite on the drive, you take that one step back. If you are planning that back foot, Embiid is pulling that up right in your mouth. It is an unstoppable shot he is shooting 69% in the restricted area, 51% in the mid-range. And I think LeBron said it, or I don't know who said it on Twitter the other night. He's getting it done in three quarters. It really is ridiculous. Like, Embiid is just finishing these games. The big thing to me that makes Embiid's case, uh, like, un- unarguable as your MVP are two things to me. The playmaking impact that we are seeing this season, the fact that he is up to six assists per game, and he's doing it in so many different ways, with dribble handoffs, uh, like, the offense just moves so much more smoother than it does last year. And I don't want to put it all on James Harden for not being there. I think Nick Nurse deserves a lot of credit. I think Tyrese Maxey deserves a lot of credit. I think these role players do too. But the offense just moves so much more seamlessly, game to game. And Embiid is playing so much more unselfishly. And he's still putting up these numbers. Again, with pin downs, with screens for guys, just taking up space, being in the right spots. He's playmaking at an all-time high in that regard but the thing to me is that he's actively reading the court Embiid didn't used to do this man when he is going to the rack and he's throwing little dump offs to the dunker spot off of drives that we're seeing legitimate playmaking growth from Embiid. where i thought that was a real concern we've seen it in multiple playoff runs where he's getting doubles thrown at him he is so much better yeah i think we have seen real growth from him as a playmaker and then it's the two-way value he's one of the best interior defenders In all of basketball. This season, Carson, he's holding players 12% below their average field goal percentage inside 6 feet on nearly 10 shots defended per game. Minimum 6 shots defended per game. That's the 4th best mark in the NBA. So he just checks all your boxes. Unstoppable scoring, improved playmaking, unstoppable shooting, and he's defending and rebounding at one of the highest levels in the league. Uh, Considering what he did to the best player in all of basketball last night, uh, Nikola Jokic and how they dogged him, I don't know how it's a question. Uh, Embiid is by far my MVP right now. The only argument that you can make against Embiid is
1: just that he's missed so many games. He's only played 29 games, which means he's currently on pace to be ineligible to win MVP, which would be a bummer. So if you want to argue that, hey, Nikola Jokic in his 12 more games has contributed more total value to the Nuggets than Embiid has to the Sixers, I would say that that's pretty inarguable. But that to me is not the most important thing in determining this award. The most important thing is who has been the most dominant on a game to game basis. And that has clearly been Embiid. You gave the production, the efficiency, 35, 12, and 6 on 65% true shooting is incomprehensible. 23 and 6 with him, 3 and 7 without him. Like he is just checking every MVP box off easily with flying colors and. The two-way impact this season has been phenomenal. He's holding opposing players 12% below their typical field goal percentage at the rim. Like, this is just a clear level up for him from last year when he was already MVP. I didn't think he should have been MVP in that loaded race, but a clear level up from an MVP season In terms of his scoring volume, his playmaking growth, you touch on. I would argue he's defended better. His team has been better when he's on the floor, despite losing a key player in James Harden. Like, this isn't just an MVP season. This, if he maintains this pace, is one of the great regular seasons of all time. This is a dude who is seven foot, 280 pounds, and is putting on such a consistent level of shot making and physical dominance and really playing the game at a high level intellectually where nobody can do anything with him. Like, in terms of the best regular seasons ever, I'm not joking when I say Embiid is going to start entering conversations with 87 Magic, with 86 Bird, with 88 Jordan, with 2000 Shaq, with 2013 LeBron, with 2016 Steph. I would say 2022 Jokic belongs up there. Like, he's on that trajectory. Because every single night, He is delivering with unbelievable dominance as a score, with two-way dominance, with brutal efficiency, just blowing teams out of the water, outplaying everybody on the court. It's remarkable what we are seeing every single night from Joel Embiid right now. And if you're going to try to discount that and you're going to say, oh, he doesn't play road games. He sits against good teams. It's silly. That's not it. Like, yeah, he certainly beats up on bad teams, but that's honestly a difference maker in the MVP conversation is how much Embiid cares about every regular season game when he's out there. How consistently he is giving his top effort. He is trying to step on your throat. Jokic is out here completing side quests, bro. He's seeing if he can still dominate a game scoring four points. His effort comes and goes. And that matters in the MVP race. This is not best player in the world. This is the regular season season. MVP. And I do want to make that distinction because I think there are some people who are looking at this level and is playing at and saying, well, he has to be the best player in the world. And I think that you cannot crown somebody with that title until they have sustained this level in the postseason. And there is nobody who has had more postseason red flags than Joel Embiid. Nobody who has had a more pronounced drop off in the playoffs than Joel Embiid. And as I've said before, he has improved upon those things that have bit him in the ass over and over again. His jump shot failing him repeatedly in the postseason. He is currently the best jump shooter he's ever been. His playmaking failing him. Teens sending doubles at him and he's turning the ball over more than he's creating quality shots for his teammates. Well, he's playmaking better than he ever has before. So if he can hold it up, then maybe there's a case. Right now, to me, it's clearly Nikola Jokic in terms of that actual best player in the world conversation, but when we're talking about best regular seasons, I mean, if there has ever been a guy who was in the, like, ultimate regular season performer, would regress in the playoffs mold, it was James Harden, who put forth some of the most dominant regular seasons, especially just purely offensively, that we've ever seen. I think that this season is clearly better from Joel Embiid than any Harden regular season that we saw because the offensive production and efficiency, I mean, is is comparable. And the two-way impact is legitimately elite. So, he has to be the MVP unless you really care about that game's played factor.
2: Yeah, I have a couple additional... Um tracking play type numbers I want to throw out here that are just really remarkable about Embiid. He's an 100th percentile pick-and-roll ball handler this season, which is ridiculous. Again, the sample size on that is very small, but an 100th percentile pick-and-roll ball handler is absurd. He's an 86th percentile uh, scorer out of isolation. He's 78th percentile in post-up situations, 70th percentile in transition, and he's top half in spot-ups, miscellaneous, and handoffs. Uh Embiid's insane. Carson, I have one final question for you. Uh, about Embiid and about this team. Do you think that Joel Embiid and Tyrese Maxey have cemented themselves as the best pick-and-roll duo in basketball? No.
1: Murray and Jokic to me, still. Because I think that Jamal Murray is a better and more versatile pure shot maker than Tyrese Maxey. I think that Jokic, when it matters most, is still a better pick-and-roll scorer than Embiid because of his edge as a shot-maker, be that from the perimeter. And Embiid has been unbelievable as a shot-maker lately, but in the playoff scenarios, it hasn't even been close. And because Jokic is so, so dominant with that runner and floater game that if he is going to roll, he can just kill you there. And then what you get from Jokic is a short-roll passer as well. I think that that is still the best pick-and-roll duo in basketball. But, I mean, Maxi and Embiid are remarkable there.
2: Mm-hmm. I want to get your age. Are they second for you? Is there anybody else that you have above them?
1: I think that they're second. I think that they're second. I mean, these dudes are just consistently dominating. And I think that as much as we can rave about Tyrese Maxi, and there has not been a bigger fan of his ever, you can go to the state of Kentucky. You will not find a bigger Tyrese Maxey yeah, fan buddy. than I. Tell
2: him. Talk to him.
1: I said that he was the best pure scoring talent on the 2020 draft. They would have called me a madman. Look at him now. Mm. But mm. you cannot deny <laughs> what Joel Embiid is doing. The massive amounts of defensive attention that he is consuming every possession and how that amplifies Maxie. Like When Embiid sits, Maxi's still putting up his raw numbers but he's doing it on 50% true shooting. Like his efficiency has been brutal. So Embiid is doing an awesome job of setting him up consistently to succeed, even if it isn't with like the sort of direct playmaking brilliance that you might get from Nikola Jokic. The constant threat that he is to defenses is absolutely making everybody around him better. And he is playmaking at a career best level. So it's got to be Embiid for me. And I just want to be clear, when I'm talking about those great regular seasons, Joel Embiid is not on the level as a basketball player to me of any of those guys because you have to do it in the playoffs for it to matter to me in the same way. I have always been a playoffs matter more than regular season guy because the game changes. The game gets more serious. Defenses get more serious. Predictable players regress. Players who are dependent on getting to the line in illegitimate ways regress. All of that is true and Embiid needs to prove that he can hold up in that arena. So those guys are in a different tier in terms of their caliber as basketball players. But in terms of this regular season, this is nuts, bro. You really can't overstate how insane what Embiid is doing night to night is. DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, is bringing you an offer that'll help make the playoffs electrifying. New customers can bet 5 bucks on any game and get
2: 200 instantly in bonus bets. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code NERDS. New customers can bet just 5 bucks to get 200 instantly in bonus bets only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code NERDS. The crown is yours. restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources.
1: Okay, Logan, this might be the most interesting award on the board,
2: in my opinion. Who is your rookie of the year? My rookie of the year is going to be Chet Holmgren. It is a really interesting race, um, and I've been pleasantly surprised with this rookie class uh, uh, more than I expected after the draft. You know, I mean, we had our top dogs, Chet Holmgren, obviously missing his rookie season, Victor Wembanyama stepping into the fold, but I've liked the depth, too. I'm going to give it to Chet. Uh, Chet, this season, 17-7-3 on 55-39-79 splits, nearly 65% true shooting with 2.5 blocks a game. He's shooting catch-and-shoot threes at a 42% clip on nearly four attempts per game. He is 27-13 with the Thunder. He has not missed a game this season. Uh, and he's holding players 10.3% below their average field goal percentage inside six feet on nine shots defended per game. Minimum six shots defended per game. That's a 10th best mark in the NBA. Uh, The reason that I would give this award to Chet Holmgren over Victor Wembanyama is because of the winning context. And I want to be clear about something. I I really have no issue if you give this to to Wemby. Wemby's Wemby's a fucking freak man he's everything that we touted him up to be. Uh, if you guys want to breakdown uh, if you haven't already seen it blowing up uh, Carson did a breakdown today on Wemby you can check it out right here on our channel. Um, Wemby's a freak and he's in such a difficult situation in San Antonio because the burden is so much on him and I know it's a played out storyline at this point. but watch a Spurs game. I don't know if the Spurs players resent him Carson like I'll use this as an example and again, I am a casual basketball player. I love playing pickup. It scratches that itch for me. I love it. When I'm playing fives and I have a good shooter with me, I tell him before the game starts: hey man, I am looking for you all game. I am gonna tee you up, just keep shooting. If you can get to an open spot on the perimeter, I'm gonna feed you. And if I was a Spurs player, I'm I'm feeding Wemby all night because I know what kind of freak he is. And The Spurs players actively don't set him up for success. I think it is a really tough situation that he is being forced to overcome, and he is getting better. But considering that Chet is doing this in such a winning context and addressed the biggest need for the Oklahoma City Thunder and is doing this so damn efficiently, I have to give it to him. Like I have to recognize that Chet's situation is not nearly as difficult as Victor Wembanyama's, and I don't know how Chet would look if he was in San Antonio. But Chet's a winning basketball player. He's doing it so efficiently on both ends of the floor right now that I just have to reward that. It is so hard for rookies to play winning basketball. Again, he is in such a better situation. He's got the two best players out of these teams. He might have more. You know what I mean? Uh, He gets to play with Shea. He gets to play with J-Dub. It's a loaded young roster. But... Chet is doing this in a winning context. Carson, right now, he is averaging the second most efficient 15 points per game in all of the NBA. Like, he just takes good shots. He's a 94th percentile cutter. He's 88th percentile out of isolation. He's a 79th percentile role man. Chet's a beast, and he addressed the Thunder's biggest need. Considering he is a rookie doing this in a winning context so damn efficiently, I gotta give the nod to Chet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is an incredibly tough decision for me. These are two of the most exceptional rookies that we have seen this century. And it's a fascinating contrast because we have maybe the most immediately ready to contribute to winning on a damn good team rookie of the last two decades versus the most overwhelmingly talented rookie of the last two decades who's in a much less serious situation. I have felt for most of the year that Chet deserves this award. He has been efficient out of every play type. He is a fantastic play finisher around the rim with his size and length and athleticism. He is a fantastic shooter. He is a smart passer. He is already a legitimately elite defender. He is a more polished offensive player than Wemby in that he's got a much tighter handle and he's less turnover prone and he's been a much better three-point shooter this year. The dude is impacting winning in a way That is incredibly rare from rookies and he's not just benefiting from being in a really good situation Which he is the stuff that he is doing in terms of this versatile two-way impact is the ideal for modern NBA bigs He is hitting that and he is doing it as a rookie Then you have Wemby who may make more mistakes and he may lose his handle more and he may take more bad shots But he will also do things that literally nobody else on the planet can. He will erase shots that nobody else can because he's 7'4 with an 8 foot wingspan. He will catch lobs that nobody else on the planet could. And has been playing at a truly unbelievable level as of late. Like, I think that if we were going to have this conversation a little bit over a month ago, it would have clearly been Chet, because Wemby would have been too inefficient, he would have been too turnover prone, regardless of the brutal situation, I think that the production and efficiency just wouldn't quite be there. But, 15 games ago, he moved to center, and since doing that, he has been much better than Chet, in my opinion. He is giving you over 20 points tonight, 11 rebounds, 3.6 assists, On 59% true shooting, he has started to knock down his threes, he's giving you almost four blocks a game, and he's doing that in fewer minutes because he's been dealing with a nagging ankle injury, so he's been on a minutes restriction for a good portion of that stretch. But he has improved in basically every single way. First of all, I think that the Spurs are asking him to do less in terms of creating in these one-on-one situations where he's been less efficient, and they have realized a bit more, hey... This dude is a literally unmatched athlete. If we can just get him the ball around the rim, he is a one-of-one finishing weapon. And so he's been much more dominant in those traditional big man settings. As a roller, he's been utilized more. He's been finishing at the rim a lot more and has been doing so more efficiently. But I also think he has become more comfortable with NBA physicality. And I think that he's become a bit more decisive as a driver. And so that also has to do with his efficiency as a finisher around the rim going up. He's been more involved as a passer where you see that he already has some really impressive ability to execute fake handoffs. He's got good timing and placement and feel dotting up cutters like he's a legitimately good passer. And then Jets defensive impact is one of the most pronounced from any rookie this century. But I think that Wemby's is on another level and You can quantify that with the on-off data, the fact that the defense has been 9 points per 100 possessions better when he's on the floor. The statistics around the rim, like he has been one of the three most effective volume rim protectors in basketball. He's holding opposing players 12% below their typical field goal percentage around the rim. But then there's also just the constant impact that his length and size has as an intimidator. The fact that people are shooting way worse from the perimeter when Wemby is guarding them because of how much his length affects any shot on a closeout. Uh, It's just remarkable. It's historic shot blocking. His ability to take away passing lanes, to erase lobs that appear to be open, to threaten both the pick and roll ball handler and the guy who was rolling at the same time. Trey Young literally talked about this, how easily he can recover to the lob threat or how easily he can block your shot as the pick and roll ball handler. We've never seen anybody like that. I think he's already in the defensive player of the year conversation to me. So Chet was clearly better in the first quarter of the season. Wemby has clearly been better in the second quarter of the season, but because of what he's done in this situation, because his efficiency now still isn't as good as Chet's, but it's catching up as his raw production is exceeding him across the board, I think that I am going with Wemby right now. To me, this is what he looks like as he's more comfortable, as the Spurs are not actively screwing him up with his situation as much, and it is just remarkable. He is doing stuff routinely that nobody else on the planet can. Everything is coming together, and he is legitimately dominating in a way that Chet isn't capable of. To me, he just doesn't have... That level of outlier tools, as crazy as Chet's tools are, he's not seven four with an 8-foot wingspan and all of this athleticism and this perimeter skill. So Chet has been more polished. He has been more consistent. He has been on a damn good team. But this surge that we have seen from Wemby over the last 15 games has been as impressive as anything I've seen from a rookie in my lifetime. And uh, I am going to value that slightly more because I think it offsets Chet's advantage and the head start that he had earlier in the year.
2: Yeah, I think Wemby's a better basketball player, and I want to be clear with both of these guys, too. I mean, uh, you would be blessed to have either of them as the building block for your oh franchise my for years to come. I mean, they are absurdly, absurdly talented. And for you Chet lovers, too, Carson's not knocking Chet. Like, Carson is as big of a Chet guy as they come.
1: I am the Chet lover. I called Chet the best prospect I had ever been able to competently evaluate. Mm-hmm. I called him the best prospect since Anthony Davis until Wemby came along. So I am a huge Chet guy. That's what I'm saying. These are two, like... Titans. Titans. (laughs) Two of the best rookies of this century. And that's why I'm not with people ragging on Chet, trying to take down any of these dudes, because they both should be Rookie of the Year. In any normal year, either one of these dudes would be a runaway Rookie of the Year. And if I can say one more thing, Logan... I made this Wemby video today and it was just hilarious to me because I mentioned at a couple points that like Wemby had become the rookie of the year underdog to Chet Holmgren, which is objectively true. He's the betting underdog. And then I was like, even if he doesn't win rookie of the year, that will have much more to do with Chet being exceptional than it does anything with Wemby because Wemby is delivering and tons of people in the comments are just freaking out about the Chet thing, thinking that um, I'm disrespecting Wemby or something. Just settle down. Okay. Wemby is my rookie of the year. But Chet is objectively the favorite right now. I think that Chet has deserved that title for most of the year because you can't just pick Rookie of the Year based on talent. You have to actually materialize that talent. And that's what Wemby's been doing as of late in an exceptional way. But just don't disrespect Chet, man, because he's special. And both of these dudes are going to be perennial MVP candidates. And watching them compete for Defensive Player of the Year is going to be fun. But there's levels to this. Chet can be Defensive Player of the Year. Wemby can be the best defensive player ever.
2: Well said, everything. The final thing I want to uh, reiterate here, the reason that I have Chet doing this is because I think he's impacted winning in a context that is just very rare to see from any rookie player. Carson, is. with your historical knowledge of the NBA, who's the last rookie that you felt like had this level or a comparable level of a winning impact immediately? Like, do we got to look back to like Magic and Bird? Is there a guy before then? Like, who in the scope do you think has had this level of winning impact like Chet?
1: So it's a really good question, and I have said that I think when you're talking about doing it on a damn good team like this, fitting into a role like Chet has, but a really important role, a like star level role where you're not the guy, but you're the second guy, I think that you could look at somebody like Blake Griffin and say he was more immediately dominant as a number one, but he was doing it on a team that wasn't all that good, right? I think when you are looking at impact on a damn good basketball team, you might have to go back to Tim Duncan. And Tim Duncan was way better than Chet as a rookie. If Chet is like a top 40-ish player, Tim Duncan was a top 5 player. Uh, But he already had that two-way dominance, but then he was capable of doing more as a legitimate go-to guy offensively. But it's just rare. And especially in the one-and-done era, and even in the early 2000s when dudes were coming right out of high school, players weren't coming in ready to contribute to winning like that. And high draft picks would rarely end up on a team where that was what was expected of them. So you have guys who have this obvious talent, but they probably are inefficient, and they probably aren't contributing too much defensively, and they probably aren't winning games. It's just a rare combination of falling into that situation and having a skill set like Chet does that I legitimately don't think we've seen in a couple decades. If you go back before then... Then you have consistently more guys, right? Like Shaq was legitimately a dominant force as a rookie. David Robinson, 24, so kind of cheating, but he was a dominant force as the rookie. Dudes were coming into the league more physically mature, 22 years old, etc. That's the
2: difference. In the 21st century, this is incredibly rare. It's very rare. I think, uh... yeah, I mean, so legitimately have not seen this in the 2000s, man. In the, in, yeah, (laughs) since 2000. That's crazy.
1: It's crazy. We hadn't seen Chet's skill set ever until Wemby came up with a little bit of a juiced up version of it. And again, Chet may have more polish, but Wemby has more upside in arguably every arena because he has tools that we have never seen before. But you know who's another Frenchman with somewhat physical tools if you squint and you take all the basketball skill out of it, who uh, (laughs) Wemby was kind of given work when he was 15, 16 years old? Rudy Gobert. Who is the current
2: defensive player of the year favorite? Is he your depoy Logan? He is my defensive player of the year. Uh big shout out to the Minnesota Timberwolves. I called the Rudy Gobert trade the worst in NBA history. Uh tell me, guys. Tell me. Nick Collison. Here. Wasn't an wasn't an uncommon take <laughs> at the time. I, I thought it was definitely on the short list. Yeah, I thought it was the worst trade uh in basketball history. And what do you know, man? Sometimes in certain situations. Uh, my grandma always said this, be patient. Hmm. Uh, sometimes patience is very key, man. It's a virtue. And sometimes- Do you think your grandma came up with that one? Yeah, I think, patient? well, I mean, wow, she's pretty, uh, shout out Gee, man. She is up there in age. I wonder if shout she invented out. it, you know? Uh, Probably. Gee always told me to be patient. And sometimes these things take time. You know, it's a, a good football team hitting their head on the ceiling every year when they get into the playoffs. so uh, good basketball team doing the same or a team struggling to figure it out and then they do it and the Timberwolves have seen that over time playing together. Wow, they've built chemistry and they've gotten better. I didn't see that coming. Rudy Gobert now with the best defensive personnel of his career flanking him uh, has really realized uh, what he did in Utah Uh, 13 and 12. Uh, With 2.1 blocks per game, the Timberwolves are 28-10 with Gobert, 0-1 without him. They play like a 64-win team with him on the floor, a 44-win team without him. They have a defensive rating of 105.7 with Gobert on the floor. They have a defensive rating of 115.3 without Gobert. That is a difference of 9.6 points per 100 possessions. Uh, The Timberwolves currently have the number one defensive rating in the NBA, Gobert is holding players 15.4% below their average field goal percentage inside six feet on nearly eight shots defended per game. Minimum six shots defended per game. That's the second best mark in the NBA to Walker Kessler. He just controls the interior in the glass, man. And, you know, I can see a counter argument. I could see you argue for somebody else if they don't have similar defensive personnel. Like number two, and this is very close to me too because I love this guy, and I think he consistently... Doesn't get the amount of love that he deserves. And that's Bam Adebayo. Uh, Bam, to me, is phenomenal. And he would be on my short list. I would have Victor Wimbanyama on my short list, which is ridiculous to say for a rookie. I would also have Walker Kessler on my short list. But when you look at the totality to me, Gobert's doing it again. And it may be ugly. You may not like the guy. He may have um, spread COVID to some reporters. He may not have the best personality. You know, I'm not a big... Personality Go Bear fan, mm, you'd be hard to find one. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, if any of you guys do, please leave a comment. I, I'm fascinated. I would love to hear your justification for that. Yeah, by the way,
1: I meant hard pressed, I didn't mean to say you'd be hard to find one. That doesn't quite sound right.
2: Hmm, hmm, anyways, that does make sense. Uh, Go Bear's my depoy he's back at it again, he's doing it again. Uh, His personnel is better. I don't know if people are going to factor that into their case. I don't really care. Gobert's doing what he always did. And uh, I think he's back to being the best defensive player on planet Earth. But I do think... Do you feel that way for a playoff run? Is he the defender you would most want? Dude, call me crazy, bro. Am I crazy for, like, low-key wanting Wemby more, maybe? Like, I might want Wemby, or I might want Bam... I would definitely... Really? Think...
1: Are you not considering Anthony Davis? Because AD is still oh, number one for me.
2: No, no, I would No, I would have Anthony Davis. Just the Lakers have just been shitty this year. Uh... No, I'm
1: not saying as deep one. I'm saying for a playoff run. I think that AD has the best combination of all of the skill sets that you want. Truly elite rim protector in a way that Bam is not physically able to hold up with his strength in a way that Wemby is not capable of guarding in space at a level that Gobert is not. I think he's the best all-around defensive big. He has no case for Depoy because of the Lakers, but...
2: No, I still think he's the best defensive player okay. on planet Earth. He can just wreck a game plan the way nobody else can. Yes, yeah. AD is number best one. Best hands? Best hands of any of those dudes I would in say terms say of affecting passing lanes? AD, Wemby, bam. I
1: would take over Gobert. Okay. Yeah, Wemby is so disgusting, dude. Like... That's the other thing. When we talk about specifically best defensive rookies, since Tim Duncan, I don't think we've seen anybody who can sniff Wemby. I think that he is probably even better because of just these overwhelming physical tools. And then I think you go back to David Robinson... And over the last 15 games, Wemby is averaging more blocks per game than any rookie since David Robinson. who, again, it's almost unfair to judge by rookie standards, because it's like, ah, oh, cool, this guy was the number one pick, he was one of the craziest athletes we'd ever seen, uh, he looked like a Greek god at 7 foot, and then we gave him 2 years, and now here he is as a 24-year-old. Wemby is unfathomably great defensively, has been all year, but now that he's the lone rim protector, like, the sheer block numbers are just disgusting, and the rebounding numbers, dude... I mentioned this in the video on a permanent basis he's out rebounding like all of the elite dudes in the league he's out rebounding sabonis comfortably he's out rebounding sabonis sucks so well he's the leading rebounder in the nba logan as he was last year sucks well i'm just talking about rebounding ability pal he's out rebounding gobert like it's ridiculous he's doing that 210 pounds or whatever the hell he weighs just insane i do have gobert here He's anchoring by far the number one defense in the league. He's holding people 15.5% below their typical field goal percentage at the rim. That is the second best mark of the top 50 rim protectors, only to Walker Kessler. Shout out to him. He, to me, just doesn't probably have the minutes total here, and his team defense isn't nearly good enough for reasons outside of him. But that dude is an awesome pure rim protector. But I do think that it's Gobert. I think that he is having one of his best defensive seasons. As you said, this is a far superior team defense to anything he ever had in Utah. So maybe it's less impressive in terms of he's not just singularly carrying Minnesota to be this great like he did back in the day, but as a pure rim protector, the dude is unfathomable. And there's no real weakness to target with him. Like I say that AD is better guarding in space than Gobert because he is, but it's not that Gobert's a liability there. He's dominant. He dominates on the glass. He's an elite shot blocker. My short list, I. Consider Drew Holiday here. I did Because too. I think he's doing something that we've kind of never seen just in terms of his matchup versatility and all the different roles that he's playing for this Celtics defense. How frequently you will see him in a roamer role. How frequently you will see him effectively as the five defensively, be that as a helper or be that guarding bigs on post-ups, which we've seen from him in the last couple years. Like He's so strong. He's so tough to move. He's the most versatile defensive guard I want to say that I've ever seen. Definitely point guard, and that has been fully on display this season. He's rebounding better, like the uh, the shot blocking numbers from are up. His rim protection has legitimately been good. I just think there's so many great pieces in that Boston defense that to pick any one guy and say he's been more valuable than Gobert has been to Minnesota's probably uh, wouldn't be right. But I do want to shout him out, and I do want to shout Wemby out as well. Okay, sixth man of the year, Logan. Who you got here?
2: Your boy. Let's go! (laughs) Dude, this is a Carson Breber favorite show. Save Rudy Gobert. uh, Pretty much my entire ballot.
1: Dude, that's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking earlier. I'm overjoyed.
2: Uh, Pretty much my entire ballot. Yeah,
1: Malik Monk, and I want to get this off. Except Embiid over Jokic for MVP. Let's be honest. That's not a Carson Breber favorite. If Jokic was MVP... That would be the the cherry on top for the Carson
2: Rubber favorites. Clean slate. I want to get this off my chest real quick because I'm just really distraught after uh, the loss last night. Uh, mm. The Suns outscored my Kings twenty five to five in the final five minutes of that basketball game, that and happens. Saboner got bodied by Kevin Durant.
1: Yeah, the slim Reaper. Kevin
2: Durant. That game was disgusting. I turned it off after we went up 22 because I thought the game was over. And then I got an ESPN notification on my phone that we lost by two points. And then I rewatched it and I watched us crumble. That was embarrassing. That's not why Malik Muck is my sixth man of the year. That was a disgusting loss. I hate the Kings. Screw you guys. Um, Malik Muck's a beast, though, and he plays a really valuable role for this team. You got to think that, you know, De'Aaron Fox is overwhelmingly the guy that carries this team through. In the half court, he puts the team on his back offensively each night disgusting pull-up jump shooting disgusting shooting from behind the arc setting up the entire offense getting guys into rhythm feeding Sabonis Darren Fox does it all and so when there's nobody else on the roster that can really initiate from the perimeter Malik Monk serves a such a valuable role where he can come in with Monk on the court with Monk out the court at the end of games Malik Monk is just such an invaluable player to have that can create out a pick and roll that can handle, They can run your offense, and they can go out there and legitimately serve buckets when he is hot. When he is on, he is a dangerous, dangerous scorer. And he's just got so much damn skill. Um, I mean, and that's really, in my opinion, the most valuable role that a six man can play. There are other six men that I want to give credit for because there are so many guys that I like that come off of the bench in the league today. Uh, Nas Reed, uh, Jaime Jaquez Jr., cole anthony josh hart bobby portis all of these guys play such valuable roles i just think malik monk is in the most valuable archetype of a six man that guy that can take the pressure off of your stars can go up and serve buckets some nights but can also just run the offense and he can also be complimentary to your guys he's shooting 44 percent on uh catch and shoot threes this season on nearly four a game 15 three and six a night Malik just is in a really valuable role for this team, and I think that they need him. Uh, there's other guys that I would consider, and I honestly don't have any issue if you go with any of the guys on my short list. But Malik Monk is the man. The Kings need him, and he consistently delivers on a night-to-night basis. And he's been clutch as fuck this year, man. When they need him to close out games and make big plays, that's what Malik Monk does. Uh, he's, my sixth, he's my sixth man of the year, dude. Malik's Malik's raw. I'm with you, and he was
1: my preseason pick for sixth man of the year. Yes, I'm he was. I'm sticking it. There are some other really good candidates. Shout out to America's favorite center, not just backup center, but I believe maybe America's favorite player, Nas Reed, with the nastiest in and out in the league, and he's shooting 40% from deep this year. Just, to me, doesn't have as significant a role as a guy like Malik Monk does. Hawkes makes a legit case here, but he's been starting for like the better part of the last 15 games, so he doesn't feel like a six-man to me anymore, and I don't think he'll be eligible for this award by year's end. Which does kind of matter to me. Like, 6th man is already such a silly award, sort of, because it's like, you're the best guy who wasn't good enough to start on your own team. Kind of a weird thing. Or maybe you were good enough, but they deliberately had you on the bench. But Malik is, like, capturing the ultimate 6th man aura right now. And I think what has set him apart this season, from previous versions of Malik Monk and from other candidates here, is his playmaking. Five and a half assists a game in 26 minutes, man. Of course, he's a special shooter. He's been better than 43% off the catch from deep. And of course, he is a crazy athlete. His explosiveness can just be a problem. His bend, man. But it is the playmaking that we're seeing from him. He has developed such good pick and roll chemistry with the Kings Bigs. He just consistently hits them with those pocket passes. I think that he's really nice at delivering drop-offs. He, he's got this knack for wrapping around dudes baseline drives kicking out to shooters like he is legitimately sort of being like a real offensive number one for your second unit and what i mean by that is most of the time your sixth men just sort of go out there and they get buckets like the traditional guys. Jay Crossover, he wasn't doing all that much playmaking. He was getting buckets. But Malik is, like, legitimately creating for others at a high level while he is scoring himself at very good volume per minute and very solid efficiency. Austin Reeves, to me, is probably the stiffest competition because, uh... I think Austin Reeves, first of all, should be starting. And he is starting now. And that's part of this. Same thing as Hawkes. Like, he's starting again. He started 16 games. Malik hasn't started a game all year. So Malik is the truer sixth man. But Reeves has given you 15, 4, and 5 on 62% true shooting. Even in a bit of a down three-point shooting year for him, he still brings that playmaking. He still brings that awesome pick-and-roll scoring, the shot-making there, the ability to get to his spots, the knack for foul-drawing. He's been really good, but, uh, I think Malik is doing it again as more of a true sixth man, a few, uh, fewer minutes per game, never starting, but still giving you very similar production and efficiency and that combo of scoring and playmaking that is just awesome. And uh, none of these dudes are going to get stops for you. I mean, that's a rare thing. That's a rare thing for a sixth man to be able to get a stop. So, uh, if you're going to try to hold that against and say he doesn't belong at all then i've got some bad news about
2: malik as well okay most improved player logan who you got for you og nerd sessions out there this man has been uh a guy that me and carson focused on in his first year at duke uh, uh. this gentleman uh, we broke down uh we fell in love with his play in transition with his ball handling ability at his size his athleticism and he flashed some of that shooting touch but he just looked like a real winner that he could impact the game in a bunch of different ways defensively you know as a tertiary or secondary guy on offense handling uh being a role man just he had Mm -hmm. tools that really jumped off the page at you and after he got drafted he kind of spent two years toiling away on the bench and we just sat here wondering man What is this guy Mm going to do? Is he going to break out? Is he going to get sent to the G League? Is he going to get traded? What's going to happen? And now that he's gotten real burn, Jalen Johnson has blossomed and has turned into a real plus and rotation player for the Atlanta Hawks. Carson, uh, you did a breakdown on him earlier this year if you want to check that out too, guys. uh, That is also on the channel. Um, Jalen Johnson's a beast. And I'm so glad that we Mm -hmm. caught on early, Carson. Because, I mean, he did. He had everything that you look for in an NBA wing. And... Compared to last season he's putting up five points a game. He's barely cracking the rotation He's not getting burned this season again his third year because that's I know that's one of your fundamental tenets about most improved Is it can't be a second year guy? That's normally when guys take the leap. This is a third year guy. That was really Unexpected and that's why I want to give it to Jalen Johnson more than anybody else is there's this is a stiff race, you know maxi Sengun, scotty barnes kobe white there's a lot of guys that were eligible and could win this award because they've taken these massive leaps the thing that makes jalen johnson so unique is that it is so unexpected that it just came out of nowhere this season 15-8-3 on 48-40-80 splits 65.7 percent true shooting nearly 66 mm. percent That's ridiculous he's averaging 1.3 steals per game and nearly a block a game he's shooting uh, 40% on three three-point attempts a night. The Hawks are 12-13 and 13 with double J. They're 4-10 and 10 without him. And he's a legitimately great defender, too. Uh, he's holding players 7% below their average field goal percentage inside six feet on seven shots per game as a help side guy. That's a 14th best mark in the NBA. Uh, so he's a great help side guy. He's great all around. I like him at the point of attack. I like him on the interior. He just had six, six steals the other game. Like He's locked in. Last season, this is a guy who's putting up 6-4-1 on 55% true shooting. He's upped his true shooting by 11%. He's upped his overall scoring by 10 points. He's averaging double-digit rebounds this year, and his impact really is just super multifaceted. He's a great athlete. He's a great defender. He's a crazy rebounder. He's a great pick-and-roll threat, and there's just other things that you have to like. He's got a little bit of a handle. He can legitimately mm-hmm. shoot now. That was my biggest question about Jalen Johnson, yeah. period. If this guy can shoot, he's going to be yeah. crazy. You know, I mean, that was the one question and asterisk on Jalen Johnson. Is he going to be able to shoot well enough to stay in the league? And he has. And he's an awesome cutter. He's just a perfect complementary piece, man. There are very few guys that I look at across the league and go, that guy's just a connecting wing piece that I want on my team. That's how I feel about Jalen Johnson. I just think he is a perfect, perfect complementary asset. And... Uh, like I said, considering how unexpected this was, he has to be my most. This is a player. really
1: interesting year for this award because I don't think there's anybody like a Lowry Markin in last year where it goes from sort of NBA lost soul to like top 25 level player, just uber efficient, 25 point scorer and Kobe. Well, now Kobe is on the short list here because Kobe definitely went from lost soul to hooper and i think that he is playmaking better than we've ever seen i think he is weaponizing his lethal shooting ability at a different level but i wouldn't say that he had a renaissance like lowry did where it's like hey we can actually build an nba offense around this guy and we can do so much with him off ball and he's more physical and is scoring with such volume and such efficiency like kobe's given you his 18, 4, and 5 on 58% true shooting, I think it's super encouraging. I've loved what I've seen from him, but it's not at that level. I think Scotty Barnes also uh, makes a case literally just because he has completely uh, revolutionized what he can do as a jump shooter, going from complete non-shooter to like 38% from deep on six attempts a game, that totally changes who he is as a basketball player, and that singular improvement is super significant. But I think that my top two candidates are two guys who I specifically highlighted for this award in the preseason. Tyrese Maxey was my pick because I just knew, man, subtract James Harden from that situation. He is the level of shot maker to give you 25 plus a night efficiently. He is going to fill at least a significant portion of that gap in terms of volume that is left behind. And that's the sort of leap that we value. You don't get a Lowry market in every year, going from 14 a game, traded from his team, to 26 a game on whatever it was, like 65% true shooting. But you may get a BI, where he goes from like solid 18 point per game kind of guy to 24 point per game. And that is just generally the leap that is most valued when we're talking about most improved. Going from good player, clearly sub-star, to like stamped all-star. And that is what Maxi has done. His playmaking has legitimately improved. And I think that just holding up any sort of good efficiency, it's down from last year. But when he is going from a third option to a second option, significantly uh, carrying more of a burden on this team, that is impressive. But when I think about the guys who have actually improved the most as basketball players, I do think it's Jalen Johnson. That was a whole lot of circumlocution, as they would call it, just to get to the what? fact that we actually have the same choice
2: here. Brody's yeah. will make me break
1: out the dictionary on the pod. Break it out. Break it out, buddy. One more t- What yeah. was that? Circumlocution. Basically means that I'm being verbose. I was just trying to add a little <laughs> bit of drama to my answer because we have the same guy. But it is really close. Jalen Johnson does not fall into that traditional most improved player mold. But again, to me, what Maxi has done is more of a product of increased volume than him revolutionizing himself as a basketball player. He's gotten better. He's definitely gotten better. But he has been that dude. And maybe the fact that I have loved him so much, ironically, makes me less inclined to give him this award because I've felt for a while, like, give him the opportunity. He is going to be a star. Whereas Jalen Johnson... This is a guy who, I mean, was struggling to get rotational minutes and has completely changed who he is as a shooter of the basketball. Gone from not a non-shooter, but pretty close to it, to a 40% guy, a really good spot-up player. We are now seeing the full value of his athleticism in the open floor. He's one of the most dangerous transition players in basketball. He is one of the most skilled ball handlers and facilitators for 6'9 that we have in the league. He is one of the most versatile defenders In the league, he is one of the most efficient scorers in the league. He is a damn good rebounder. I just think this is a real winning basketball player. I think this is a dream number three. And I think that before I saw him this preseason, when I got really encouraged, because I was like, whoa, this dude looks different. His shot looks different. He's really getting a crack at this stuff and he is balling out. It was like, what is Jalen Johnson? Tyrese Maxey, we knew was a stud. Jalen Johnson was an unknown commodity. He could have gone bust. And instead, he has gone in like the best possible direction. And to me, here's the analogy that I'll make for this, okay? Because I've mentioned the traditional most improved player mold is that jump from good to star. But then you will have years where a guy goes from very uncertain commodity to really good. I'll compare this to Pascal Siakam, who went from 7 a game as a second-year player to 17-7-3 seven his second year, doing it efficiently, clearly improved in terms of offensive skill, improved as a shooter, but didn't have star-level production. He wasn't an all-star that year. That, to me, is the sort of mold that Jalen Johnson's most improved case falls into. I don't think he's going to win it. I think Maxi will win it, because that is what the voters tend to favor. These are both my guys, though. I couldn't be mad either way for me it's a huge win either way and by the way they uh just about a week ago had an awesome I'll call it a duel back and forth it's not like they were matched up but Maxi was going off and Jalen Johnson was going off in a really good game between the Hawks and the Sixers Maxi had like 40 I think and Jalen Johnson at 25 16 and 7 so shout out to my guys they're both balling
0: all right there are some things that are too good to keep a secret
2: Coach
1: of the Year, Logan. Last award that we're going to talk about today because uh, we don't acknowledge Clutch Player of the Year. I don't like it.
2: Who's your Coach of the Year? Marky Mark from the young, funky bunch of OKC. Oh, Mark, uh, Mark Dagnalt, uh shout out. The Thunder are 27-13. They're fourth in offensive rating. They are sixth in defensive rating, and they are tied second in net rating. Uh... The reason I'm giving it to Dagnall is just because I'm so impressed that Oklahoma City has done this with such a young roster. And I think Sam Presti deserves such an immense amount of credit for putting this team together. I mean, that guy's the GOAT GM. Maybe next to Carson. Danny Ainge or Sam Presti? You get one executive. Damn.
1: Damn. Danny Ainge, because it has resulted in a title. But... They're both awesome. Here's what I'll say. I think that Danny Ainge is more of a mastermind in terms of trade value, although Presti's really good there. But again, at some point, you have to turn it into that one big asset. Take all of your little assets and turn it into that one big asset. But nobody is more masterful at the rebuild. Nobody is a better drafter than Sam Presti. It's very close. They're the two goats of the 21st century.
2: And yeah, so I think Presti deserves an immense amount of credit for putting this team... Together, sure. but the reason I'm going to go with Mark Dagnall is because with young rosters, and I said this last year, uh, watching Oklahoma City, the team just played hard. They had a tenacity to them. They had a fire, a passion, a drive that they, you know, they take a look at the Pistons. I mean, when they go down in a game, they just they're done. They're done. Their goose is cooked. They lost the lead. The game is over. They've put their heads down. Oklahoma City, no matter the situation, played hard, man, and. And now in this context, with such a young roster, they still do. They play their asses off each and every night. I just feel like I have to reward such a young roster for figuring it out so soon. And they play beautiful basketball. Uh, The Oklahoma City are so much, uh, the Thunder is so much fun to watch. Uh, On my short list, uh, Chris Finch deserves, I think, a ton of credit again for Minnesota figuring it out. I think Nick Nurse deserves a ton of credit for getting Philadelphia really playing the best basketball um, of Embiid's career. Uh, and finally, I would give a shout out to Ty Lu. The only reason I wouldn't go with Ty Lu is because they made the push to get James Harden. They're just so immensely talented up and down the roster. It's just not as impressive to me. So, considering the youth of the roster and how great they are across the board, I think Mark Dagnall uh, deserves to, I think I picked him... I want to say I picked Dagnold either in preseason and/or last year. No, Mike I Brown. I think we
1: both had him preseason. I yeah. definitely had him preseason. It was
2: I had him preseason. I picked Mike Brown last year as my coach of the year. Show shout out, uh, shout out, Marky Mark in the Young Funky Bunch, man. Uh, Dagnold is my guy. Marky Mark is my
1: runner up, Logan. Ooh. I think he's a great basketball coach. I really believed in this Thunder team before the year. and That's why I had him as my coach of the year but the level of winning that we've seen from such a young core is extremely rare throughout NBA history. I think that he has an awesome basketball vision, a futuristic basketball vision that I'm sure has been assembled in tandem with his vision and Sam Presti's vision. I think he knows how to utilize the multiple ball handlers and just get the most out of all of these guys in a situation where you have a lot of talent stacked on top of each other, but they don't feel redundant. They feel complimentary. They always play hard defensively. They're winning a whole lot of games, but my coach of the year, Logan didn't even get a shout out from you. Didn't even get a shout out. Will Hardy is my coach of the year of the Utah jazz. Some of you guys may not even know the name Will Hardy, but what we are seeing from Utah right now is insane. And we haven't really had a good chance to talk about it, but they've won 15 of their last 19 games. It is one of the more impressive turnarounds in a season in recent memory and we'll see to what extent they sustain it but in their current 6 game win streak they have handled the Sixers, they have whooped on the Bucks, they have whooped on the Nuggets, they have beaten the Lakers and in their two games against like just less talented teams Toronto and then Indiana without Halley cuz he's hurt right now, they won by a combined 59 points. So they're beating the good teams and they're blowing out the bad teams and this is the Utah Jazz that we're talking about. And As much as I love Lowry Markinen, I was not optimistic about the talent here. I thought that this was one of the worst backcourts in the league, frankly, even liking a guy like Keontae George, just so inexperienced. I thought this team was clearly lacking a natural facilitator and a veteran presence in the backcourt, like a Mike Conley. I thought they had defensive liabilities up and down the roster. I worried about introducing John Collins here after such a down shooting season. What would he do to their spacing? And how would he hinder them defensively? But they are playing legitimately really good basketball right now. And what's so fun to me is that Hardy has built this good team in a super unique style that really plays to his guys' strengths. Nobody in the league, and this includes the Golden State Warriors, who have like pioneered this over the last decade, is better at using off-ball screens, in my opinion. They are prolific, they are creative there, uh, and it really works because their best player is Larry and who is this crazy shooter coming off screens at his size. He can attack closeouts in those situations. It's just a problem. But overall, the off-ball movement here is awesome. They're a really smart cutting team. And I don't think anybody has better spacing concepts than the Jazz. Like, they'll go out there with 3 six ten dudes in one lineup, But two of them can really shoot. And even what they do with Walker Kessler, I think, is awesome. He is a really smart and instinctual cutter. And so sometimes, even though he's a total non-shooter, they'll tuck him in the corner on the weak side, and then he'll basically just read whatever's going on with the ball handler and the guy guarding him is going to think, well, I can just neglect him and work as a helper. And oftentimes Walker Kessler will just sneak up and he'll cut behind a guy when he's not paying attention and it's a free bucket. So you're helping your spacing. You're getting free points for this guy who is a non-shooter in a way that other teams often don't. They're one of the lowest volume pick and roll teams. Pick and roll dominates the league, but the Jazz just aren't good at it. It's not their strength. So I really appreciate his ability, Will Hardy's, to find unconventional routes to really good offense that really suits his team's personnel. And it's kind of a fun roster. We know they don't have that traditional lead guard, but they have this cool blend of like a big front court. They're an elite rebounding team. And then they have real shooting skill from all of those guys, except for Kessler as well. And he's just getting the most out of everybody, which you got to have to do with this talent level to be winning this many games. But John Collins sucked last year. He is an efficient basketball player again. Colin Sexton is is hooping. He's giving you 17 a night on 62% true shooting. They're getting quality minutes from Simone Fontecchio, like a 28-year-old second-year guy who they picked up last year. God knows where he came from. Italy, I presume. But like, he's solid. Uh, Keontae George, right? Maybe he's not the most efficient, but they're getting quality minutes from a rookie in an important role. And you gave props to Dagnall for this. He has them competing, what incentive did this team have to fight at 7-16? and 16? Like, they're not incentivized to tank because they don't have their own pick in this draft. But their pick is actually top 10 protected. So, I take that back. They do have an incentive to tank because they should want to keep their pick. And the rumors were starting to pop up about, oh my god, maybe Lowry Markkinen isn't untouchable and maybe they would move him. And with all of that going together, the perfect storm for an NBA team in 2024 to throw in the towel and say, eh, let's see if we can do what the Wizards or the Spurs are doing and, you know, maybe trade our couple win now assets. They have been kicking everybody's ass and they are the hottest team in the league. So it's just an awesome accomplishment by Will Hardy. I also think Lowry is making himself a mandatory inclusion for the all-star game. He is unbelievable. His efficiency, his production, but also his gravity, the stress that he puts on defense is away from the ball. He's having such a big impact. But Will Hardy is the dude who saw that vision in the first place. Will Hardy is the dude who helped empower Lowry to become a star and has since continued to make the most out of all these basketball players on his team in creative ways. I think he's an awesome coach and uh, I think he deserves credit. This isn't a conventional coach of the year case because they're not contending. They have no upside to make playoff noise. But doing this much with this roster is insanely impressive to me.
2: Yeah, and I thought about Will Hardy. They just hadn't won enough games for me uh, to consider. One fifteen to the
1: last 19,
2: pal. Yeah, I mean, just hasn't been long enough for the entire... I I want something that's sustained throughout the rest of the season. And, I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. Like, it's mad impressive. Uh, Could you reward a guy with Coach of the Year if they're a play-in team? Well, potentially, but
1: I think that you don't necessarily have to be a great team. It certainly helps, but think about some of the recent winners. I mean, even last year, right? Mike Brown, of course, I thought that he was a a great coach in terms of strategy and what he did with that offense, and the Kings were a a great offense, but they weren't an elite basketball team. They won 40-something games, high 40s. Tibbs, two years before that, the Knicks were... The four seed, uh, they won, I think, like 41 games in that 72 game season. So yeah, he's a little bit below the bar, but I don't care. I think that he has done the most to elevate his team this year. Like, it's interesting because I always feel that NFL coaches are so much more important than NBA coaches. NFL coaches can be worth like three to four wins in a season, whereas I I very rarely feel that an NBA coach is going to make up for, you know, a like 20% difference in your win total like that, but Will Hardy is kind of that guy right now. I've been really, really impressed.
2: Yeah, you make a good point, Carson, especially relative to expectation. Uh, Another guy that I would consider relative to expectation is Ime Udoka. Obviously, the Rockets have cooled off a little bit, but you think similar situation, a lot of young unknown commodities coming from a very low spot last season, and he's really getting the most out of a lot of these young guys. Uh, Cam Whitmore has been playing really well uh, these past few games, and I was really worried about his motor as a player. It's a little bit of a tangent, sorry. I I was really worried about his motor as a player. Uh, I've been really impressed at how hard Cam has been playing. Like, he's a lot more engaged and locked in than I expected Cam to be. But again, for such a young roster, for a team that I didn't expect to even be remotely close to the play-in or have any kind of expectations like that, for the Rockets to be... Uh, where they're at and to be playing this hard night to night. Ime would be on my on my short list. I wouldn't give it to him, but he'd probably be somewhere in that you know top 10 to top 5 range. Yeah, I think that he makes a similar case. I think that
1: Will Hardy makes a better version of it because I think that he has led a better team with less talent. But what Ime has gotten Houston to do defensively, where they've consistently been elite on that side of the ball as one of the youngest teams in the league... Like, bringing in the couple vets, a lot of people criticized it. The money was certainly high in terms of per-year value, but they did bring something culturally in terms of that two-way commitment, as did Ime. So, I think he belongs on the shortlist as well. Alright, there you have it, folks. Clutch Player of the Year is Malik Monk. There you go. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. If you did, you can always find the rest of our content on the NerdSesh YouTube channel and listen to the show across all audio platforms. You can uh, also follow us across social media, TikTok and Instagram at nerdsesh, Twitter at nerd underscore sesh. And uh, that's where you'll see that we do trivia content. You can watch some clips from our show, all that stay tuned into what we're doing. Real quick before we get out of here, I don't want to go this entire show without mentioning it. Because Dejan Milojevic, the Warriors assistant, who also was Nikola Jokic's coach over in Serbia, has passed away. Really, really sad story. So obviously feel for everybody involved in that. So with that, as always, appreciate you guys. I have been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh.
0: You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A Redwood Forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.